The Gospel of John begins unlike any other gospel. Matthew and Luke begin with the nativity. The Gospel of Mark seems to get right to the point and begins with the ministry of Jesus. But the Gospel of John begins like the book of Genesis. John began not with the ministry of Jesus or even his birth. John began his gospel with the beginning of time itself. But have you ever wondered why John chose to begin that way? It certainly wasn't plagiarism and it wasn't a coincidence. John began his gospel by using the words found at the beginning of Genesis, and he did so on purpose. But the beginning of John's gospel isn't exactly the same as Genesis. In Genesis, the story is about how God made the heavens and the earth. But in John, the story is about how God would remake them. In Genesis, God creates by speaking. He creates by His Word. But in John, the Word of God isn't just spoken. In John, the Word takes on flesh. The Word of God is made manifest. In John, the Word isn't just spoken, but the Word is born into this world. And then the Word Himself speaks. John tells a story where the Word of God takes on human flesh and was born into the very creation that He spoke into existence. Whatever else Christmas is, it is most certainly that. Christmas is the bedrock of the Christian story itself. It's the foundation for every other celebration in the church year to come. Sometime later this year, we'll celebrate Pentecost. And as you know, the church itself would not exist without Pentecost. But there's no Pentecost without the ascension. There's no ascension without the resurrection. There's no resurrection without the crucifixion, and there's no crucifixion without the incarnation. There is no Good Friday without Christmas. The chain of events that unfold into the redemption of the world begin with a baby in a manger. This is the miracle and the wonder with which John begins his gospel. The miracle and wonder of Christmas itself. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk through some of the big ideas of Christmas, some of the big ideas of the Incarnation. And I'm going to start by asking you guys a question. No need to raise your hand. Just answer silently in your your minds. (laughs) I got in trouble last time I did that. (laughs) In the Gospel of John, where is the very first mention of a marriage? Now, most people answer John chapter 2. This is the very first wedding that that they can think of, the wedding at Cana, the one where Jesus turns the water into wine. But did you know there is a wedding in John's gospel even before that? But to see it, you need to understand something first. You see, the most common way to understand the word marriage involves things like husbands and wives and bridesmaids and rings. But that's not the only way to understand the word marriage. Marriage can be more generally understood as a union of two compatible things. For instance, when you take a plug and you, and you plug it into a, to an outlet, that's a marriage between the outlet and the cord. The marriage of cord and outlet is possible because the cord and the outlet are actually designed for one another. They're joining together. Their marriage is possible because both the cord and the outlet were actually made with one another in mind. So if you take that understanding of marriage, you discover that the very first marriage mentioned in John's gospel actually occurs in our gospel text. John chapter 1 verse 14 said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The marriage in this verse is the marriage between the Word and flesh. 
In the person of Jesus, heaven and earth, divinity and humanity, word and flesh are joined to one another. The God who is spirit and humanity made from the dirt of the earth are united to one another. They're bonded to one another. They are married to one another in an unbreakable union. And that is the first big idea that we get in Christmas. The incarnation of Jesus, the word becoming flesh, the union of divinity and humanity in the person of Jesus is permanent. It is forever. The marriage of God's nature to ours wasn't just some temporary thing. It wasn't an act that Jesus put on for a few decades, and then when he got to heaven, he took his humanity off. No, that is not what this is. Today, as we speak, there sits on the throne of heaven at the right hand of the Father, the eternal Son, very God of very God. There sits at the Father's right hand a Jewish carpenter born in Bethlehem, very man. Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, is now and will be forevermore divinity enfleshed. But this raises an interesting question, and perhaps you've never considered it. Are there rules for the incarnation? I mean, could Jesus be incarnate into something other than humanity? And I don't want to sound irreverent when I say this, but could Jesus assume the nature of something like an elephant? Could Jesus be fully elephant and fully God? Chris, if you're watching this, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but seriously, could he, could, could he do that? Would that work? Could he assume the nature of a fish or a tree? And if not, why not? Why couldn't Jesus just be incarnate into other things, just like he was into humanity? Well, here's why. When God creates humanity, he creates them in his what? image. In all of creation, nothing else has that distinction. Nothing else in the creation bears the image of God like humanity. Humanity is distinctly created to know and to be known by God, and the way in which God seeks to know us is by joining himself to us, by joining his nature to ours. The incarnation of God, his taking on human flesh, is possible only because God made humanity with incarnation in mind. God intentionally fashioned humanity with the capacity to receive him. This means there's nothing else in the whole universe that is made to receive God like you. Nothing else was created by God with the intention of union with God. God decided to marry his nature to ours, and so God made our nature compatible with his. And that is the second big idea of Christmas. God's intention for humanity has always been incarnation. God's intention has always been to bind himself to us, to unite himself to us. God's intention has always been to incarnate himself and to assume our nature so that through the incarnate one, we might assume his. Incarnation has always been the plan. It's always been the plan because God has always sought to give himself to you in the deepest way possible. And there's nothing deeper than the incarnation. Nothing accomplishes the goal of intimate knowing like the incarnation. And in the person of Jesus, that marriage of humanity and divinity began. My theological grandfather, a man by the name of Dr. Dennis Kinlaw, he said this once about God's intention in the incarnation. He said this, Before time began, the father had an idea in his mind 
The father would fashion from the dirt of a planet yet to be called earth, a bride for his son. God wasn't making this incarnation stuff up as he went. He wasn't playing it by ear. No, God's intention has always been to marry you. It's always been to unite his nature to yours. It's always been to share himself in the deepest way possible. His intention has always been incarnation. It's always been Christmas. And the fact that Christmas has always been God's intention has some serious theological implications. And I want you to listen to me carefully. The third big idea of Christmas, the incarnation is motivated by God's love for us, not by our sinfulness. God married his nature to ours in spite of the fall, not because of it. The incarnation was not predicated on our rebellion to him. The incarnation was not predicated on our need. It was predicated on his nature. As John says in verse 10, he came into the world even though the world would not receive him. And the reason he did this, the reason he was moved to come to us was because he loved us first. The incarnation is so central to God's purpose for humanity that nothing would stop him from accomplishing it. Even if the world to which he came was in full-blown rebellion to him. Even if his entrance into this world was side by side with animals in a barn. Even if his entrance into this world meant that the world would kill him from coming. Nothing would stand in his way. Nothing would stop him from joining his nature to yours. Nothing would stop him from knowing you. Think about it like this. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to refer to God as our Father. So let me ask the fathers, the mothers, a question. Parents, do your children have to motivate you to love them? Don't answer if it's not what I'm looking for. Okay? (laughs) Do your children need to do something in order for you to want to be with them and know them? Of course not. Parents move towards their children and we seek to know them because we love them from the moment they're born. They need do nothing to garner our love. Our desire to be with our children is not predicated on their obedience or the lack thereof. Our movement towards our children happens before they've done anything at all. Our desire to be with them and know them is predicated on our love for them. Or think about it this way. Jesus is the bridegroom. He calls the church his bride. Husbands, who among you would not protect your wife even at the cost of your own life? Really don't answer wrong there. What does your wife need to do in order for you to come for her, to know her, to be near her? Answer, nothing. You seek to be with her and you desire to know her because you love her already. And God understands these human pictures. God knows the resolve of a parent. He knows the resolve of a husband. God knows that there are no scenarios. There are no occasions. There is nothing in this world that would stop me from coming for my children. There is nothing in this world that would stop me from coming to my wife. And God points at those deep relational connections and he says, Yes, Bubba, my love for you is like that. Only much, much deeper. There is a fierce and constant and untamed love of God that is shown beautifully in Christmas. 
no matter what the world threw at him, no matter what the world was going to do to him, nothing would hold back the divine son from sharing himself with us. It wasn't a plan B for if the world messed up. No, the incarnation was always the plan. It was always God's intention to come for you. It was always his intention to marry you. It was always the father's intention to bring us into his family by being a bride to his son. And nothing would stop God from accomplishing that goal. Nothing would stop the incarnation. Nothing, absolutely nothing would stop Christmas. But boy, oh boy, did we try. Man's rebellion in the garden, our rejection of God, dissolved our union with God. In the fall, all that God had intended for creation was now under threat. But God, with the ferocity of a protective parent, with the fury of a faithful husband, refused to let the fall have the final word. In the incarnation, heaven and earth would touch once more. In the incarnation, humanity would no longer be estranged from divinity because in the person of Jesus, humanity and divinity would be joined again. They would be reconciled. And by that reconciliation, in the reconciler himself, in Christ, all creation would now be made new. And this brings me to the last big idea of Christmas. The salvation that God offers to the world comes only through incarnation. It comes only through the incarnate one. And the salvation that he offers, what salvation is for the Christian, is for heaven and earth to touch once more in you. Salvation is the offer for us to be joined in our very natures back to God. Salvation is God's life now present in you. His nature married to yours. Salvation is where God, by the Holy Spirit, incarnates himself in you. Where a human person who is intended for, but alienated from God, can now be filled with the very life of God and born anew. By God's life, we are born again. And with this new birth, we are now called children of the Father and a bride to His Son. Guys, your salvation is about reunion with God. And that idea escaped me for years. But guys, the fact that our salvation is about union with God means that salvation can't be best described as just being forgiven. Yes, Christ forgives our sins. And yes, that is a marvelous and a necessary thing. But the forgiveness of your sins is not the ultimate goal of your salvation. The final purpose of your salvation is that you are reunited with the forgiver. God forgives your sins so that he can have you. Your sins are forgiven so that you can have him. Forgiveness is a means to an end then. And that end is reunion with God himself. Guys, never forget these truths about Christmas. That the union of divinity and humanity in Christ, that that incarnation is forever. That the incarnation was always the plan. That it was motivated by God's love. And that salvation is the eternal God being made present in you. God is making all the crooked paths straight. He's making all that is old new. All of humanity that was estranged from God in the fall can now be reconciled to the Father through the Son.
And every bit of it began with a tiny baby in a manger. <laughs> 